Casey, I want to hear what are your real feelings about LinkedIn content? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 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 soul crushing, um, cargo culting of, of the worst variety. Um, but it works for their business. Hey everyone, welcome back to Unsolicited Feedback, the podcast where we take recent product, feature, and other news announcements, and we give our feedback, positive and negative. Nobody really asked for this feedback, but we're going to give it anyways, and we have a lot of fun along the way. I'm Brian Balfour. I'm founder and CEO of Reforge. I'm joined by my co-host, Fareed Masavad. Today, we have one of our really good friends and most incredible guests, uh, Casey Winners. Casey was most recently chief product officer at Eventbrite. Prior to that, was at Pinterest and Grubhub. But Casey has also been an advisor to almost any name brand company in Silicon Valley that you can think of, uh, from Airbnb to Canva to Thumbtack to Reddit uh, to Ritual to Fair. Um, Casey has been really deep and involved in a lot of different um, incredible uh, consumer and B2B companies. And today we cover a few different topics. First, um, we dive deep on HubSpot's most recent product announcements around uh, their AI announcements, but specifically the unsung hero of uh, HubSpot Commerce. And then we dive deep on an article published by Hunter Walk on the creator economy. We break it down, analyze it, talk about some of the things we agree and disagree with and get into some conversations around marketplaces and why we haven't seen any big new marketplaces recently. Casey gives some really deep insight there. Uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. Should we check in on our Twitter and threads? But, uh, uh, as a, I want to, I, I want to review the, where we're at on this. Okay. So in case we actually use this in the episode, uh, for those who don't know about a month ago, maybe two months ago, how long? Like it was maybe like a month and a half ago. A month ago, yeah, about a month. Yeah, when we were when we were jamming on this, we all it was right after Threads launched, and uh, the three of us took a little bet on where we thought Twitter and Threads DAUs would be one year from now, and we each uh, kind of placed a little placed a little bet. W wager Fareed was Threads at five hundred million DAUs, Twitter at a hundred million DAUs. Yeah. Casey was. At a hundred million DAUs for Threads and Twitter at 175 million DAUs, and I went for 50 million DAUs at the under on here, and uh, Twitter at 250 million. Which uh, this is, that's what Twitter is at today. So I'm basically saying it's flat. So how do you two feel about your bets right now? Just wondering. All right, so I want to just caveat a little bit that my bet was <laughs> it would either be this or they would shut Threads down. That if they didn't feel like they could get to this point, it would probably be not worth the effort, not worth the 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 investment. And like many other failed Facebook experiments, which we've talked about, they'd see it as a successful failure and shut it down. And I will say, I'm definitely not feeling good about the bull case on this right now. <laughs> uh, it does not feel like there is enough organic engagement right now for me in particular on threads for them to really turn on the growth engine, which they've started to do a little bit, but you know, I think they're being smart about it and kind of holding out and it does not feel like it's going to hit this bar. So right now I would take definitely the under on my number. <laughs> uh, I think the Twitter yeah. side of the bet is maybe still okay. 
Uh, it is. Oh, it, you still think it, they're going to shrink more more than fifty percent? I think in a year that's probably overly aggressive, but I do think that it, you know, as we talked about last week on the pod, LinkedIn is taking a lot of the juice that I thought Threads would take, um, and seems to be the beneficiary of a lot of this um, engagement shift. Yeah, JC. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about my Twitter bet. Uh, I think what I talked about, you know, in that previous uh, chat is kind of just the slow decline in engagement from a few different factors, how they're handling the algorithmic feed. Uh, and it seems like that's kind of continued. It's it's maybe not declining as fast uh, as it was uh, when we last chatted, but I still think there is a decline happening there. And uh, on the threads comment, I basically said like, the bet is to default to zero because that's what happens with every new social network. Uh, and to make it more interesting, I would bet that they put the Facebook growth team on this uh, and that it will drop below 20 million DAU and then they'll go grab it back. And I think to Fareed's point, they haven't really put the Facebook growth team on this because I think the insight is from threads is it doesn't have a unique element of product market fit for them to juice. Uh, so it's kind of not ready for the growth team. And look, that's happened before with Meta's products and they'll just decide to jam it down your throat until you like it. Um, and that's not what they're doing with Threads. And I think that's the correct move. Threads needs more time in the oven to find out what it's like secret sauce can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the secret sauce is not we're going to be, uh, you know, a, a Twitter uh, without, you know, a megalomaniacal uh, person, you know, randomly ruining its best parts. Uh, LinkedIn's going to be that, to Freed's point. Um, <laughs> so they need something else. Uh, and I don't know what type of, you know, internal hypotheses they have going on about that. I, w- I will expect them to try a bunch of those, but I don't think they'll really try to turn the growth engine on to, the drop below 20 to get back to 100, I thought they would do until they have that insight. Yeah. I'm feeling pretty good about where I'm standing. Yeah. Um, so, I think you should <laughs> feel pretty good. I mean, I still think the Twitter number's high. Uh, oh, you still think that they're going to decline? Yeah, that's, possi- that's possible. I think we violated best practices for prices, right? Rules, which is nobody shows one dollar or one dau uh to choose, choose the under uh because i think even like 50 million daus for threads at this point is probably pretty aggressive uh um for yeah for stands but we'll see and to casey's point you know i've poked around threads a few times because i still get notifications when new people join and those kinds of things like the types of things that like keep you checking in a little bit like hey there's life here let me see what it is but it really doesn't feel like it's like found its unique voice yet or it's like they're all general purpose social networks at the end of the day they all have the same features a lot of the time but every network kind of has its own vibe its own like you know unique personality its own unique culture and threads really just does feel like the place people who were sick of twitter have moved the exact same stuff that they used to do on twitter onto threads and there's just like not enough critical mass for that right now to be a winning product. Um, well, I think the thesis was more that with the Instagram network, you're going to get a bunch of people who weren't 
you know, on Twitter or X and the way that they use a more text-based platform would be interesting in different ways. And I think the reality is they don't want to use a text-based platform. They want to post pictures. Whereas like LinkedIn, it feels very different from Twitter, even with the same sort of product, you know, that called it before. It's like, it's, it's a parody of work. I don't like the product market fit it has, but uh, I was, it's I was got it. A little bit. I, Casey, I want to hear what are your real feelings about LinkedIn content? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's soul crushing um, cargo culting of, of the worst variety, um, but it works for their business. Uh, and people are, you know, buying into that hedonic treadmill or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but you know, every time I see a dot, 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 or let's dive in, you know, I just close app, uh, immediately. And people started to do that on Twitter to be fair as well. Like, uh, and I don't like it there either, but, um, uh, like most, I think the more senior you are, the more you go to LinkedIn and read like a random post and can't take it any other way than as a joke. And, and that's not, not something I enjoy because they're not funny jokes, right? They're unintentional jokes. Is it even possible at this point to have an online social community with, I don't know what we want to call it, um, you know, non-cargo cult clickbait type of content? Because that, and like every place has turned into that at this point. And we, we, just, we even talked about other ones like blind and stuff like that, which can be even more toxic. It's just, or are, are we humans as wire, wired for our own doom? Right. If you if you play that game, I think it's like building a startup. Where if you're building a startup, like like a company, right? You have a lot of cultural elements for free from the early employees you bring in, the strout, the founders, very strong points of view on certain topics, and you can have a very like healthy culture, scaling that to perhaps a few hundred people. But if you don't really dial in the parts of that that are working healthily and instill them and enforce them for the next doubling of your company and the next doubling of your company, you will lose all of it and you will default to a you know more toxic, in it for me, not in it for the company sort of approach. But if you try really, really hard and you put in a lot of effort, you can preserve a healthy culture at scale. And very few companies you know achieve that because it's very hard. And I think social networks are the same, right? Where um, if you design the community in the right way and you put in a lot of work to enforce those sort of community norms to preserve whatever sort of qualities that you care about as the founder, I think you can avoid some of what we've seen at, at the most popular social networks, but it's really difficult. And perhaps there's too much fame from cargo culting to prevent that at scale. But that would be my bet on if it's possible, how you would do it. It's very similar to, you know, trying to scale the culture of, of a company. Hmm. Yeah. My view on this is similar, but I think it's also that some of what we see, look, the beginning, the early era of social networking was naive. The, you know, the individuals acting on the were naive, like, we posted about hamburgers that we were eating and like photos from frat parties or whatever it was that Facebook grew up around. 
because we'd never seen networks like this. And a lot of the concern was like, oh my God, all these kids are putting stuff on the internet that no one will ever see. But now we've been through a decade of this and nobody's a naive participant anymore, right? Like my kids are very, very, very aware of like how they interact on social media, what goes where, who's going to see it, what the privacy rules are, et cetera. But also the emergence of sort of large one-to-many broadcast networks like Twitter, adding following, uh, you know, on on LinkedIn, so it wasn't just close connections, et cetera, has meant that you can become quite famous or at least build a lot of personal brand by acting in certain ways on these networks. And you can generate status by copying what other people with status do. And so these things end up taking on a mind of their own. And so I don't think that there will be any future network where anyone doesn't walk in and ask the question, is there a way to make money here? Is there a way for me to be fa- get famous here? You know, for me to gain some social status in some way by behaving in a certain way and then for others to be following that. I don't think that's possible again, but I do think that like, you know, you don't see the same behaviors in smaller, more private networks, right? Smaller communities, uh, you know, all the WhatsApp chats I'm in, Slacks, maybe Discords are a little sort of in between because they, you know, there there is status or, or like you can build a business using Discord, this kind of thing. So I don't think that we will ever not see this. I think we've just like, people are too smart uh, and have learned too much about how these things work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Should we get to our regularly scheduled program? Yeah, we sure should. We should. Anybody want to ki- anybody feel passionate about kicking us off? Yeah. So Casey, uh, welcome to unsolicited feedback as I'm sure you know, but I'll share for uh, anybody listening for the first time. What we do here is uh, we talk about a recent product. Uh, everybody brings to the table some kind of recent product announcement, an article they read, something that's interesting going on in the tech world. Then we break it down. We give feedback that, uh, what was it? What is, what is the line there, Brian, that nobody asked for? <laughs> <laughs> feedback nobody asked for. And sort of I'm great at that. Yeah. Unlock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's why. Why do you think you're guests? one of our early guests, Casey? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we just talked about communities. We want you to set the tone for all of the rest of the guests. So, okay. Um, well, be careful what you wish for, Brian. <laughs> all right. So uh, I'm going to kick us off with one of the companies I am an alumni of, HubSpot. So every year HubSpot does this uh, big uh, inbound conference, they call it. And usually they use that as a moment to announce a ton of new product releases. And uh, this year was no different. They announced quite a bit of stuff. And to no surprise, they uh, announced um, a lot of AI-driven stuff. However, I think uh, there's a bit of an unsung hero in all of these announcements that um, I'm really like interested in diving into. So this was one of the graphics that they gave in the keynote. And so for our listeners, what uh, we're looking at right now is essentially an image with a bunch of boxes of HubSpot's products on it. At the bottom is the CRM that kind of forms the foundation of it. And sitting on top of the CRM are all of their other different products. They call them hubs. So there's the marketing hub, which is their marketing automation product. There's the sales hub, which is their sales acceleration product. Service hub, CMS hub, operations hub, commerce hub, right? A lot of different, a lot of different hubs. First, it's actually pretty shocking. When I joined the company, and this is 
make me feel really old. There was only one box, <laughs> like total, on this graphic, which was the marketing hub. And uh, the two products I worked on were the smart CRM and the sales hub. But I imagine the two of you are thinking, ooh, this looks like great product market fit expansion, which we will uh, dive into first. But a lot of these products that they've been expanding into are a large part of the reason for their growth. Uh, so this is about, this starts at Q117, their quarterly revenue, which was at 82 million. And then in Q2 2023, they've grown to 530 million in quarterly revenue, right? Pretty massive jump with this nice little inflection point, which I think is around COVID. I'm actually not sure what the major cause uh, of that inflection point was. That looks around like 2019, 2020, somewhere, somewhere in there. But of course, when I was at HubSpot, before we went public, the big question we were always trying to, to answer was, how do we maintain somewhere around 50% year-over-year year growth. Uh, and we went through this whole exercise of like, what does that mean? Where do we have to be five years from now? And one of the big realizations was like, we couldn't do it on our on our one single product. We had to go through this exercise of what you two call in the product strategy program, product market fit expansion. And there's been a bit of a master set of like, playbooks here, right? So there's three ways uh, that you talk about expanding product market fit expansion. There's taking your current offering and moving it to an adjacent market. So same product, adjacent market. There's also holding your market constant and expanding it to uh, new products. And then there's new product, new market, which is diversification, which we talk about is usually a bad idea uh, for for a whole host of reasons, and and we can and we can talk about that. HubSpot specifically has really played this current market, new products with a couple slight tweaks, which I'll talk about, and they've repeated that over and over, uh, as you can see here from like the graphic where we started with the marketing hub, and we leveraged that marketing audience. <clears throat> um, into the sales space. Now that might seem like diversification, new product, new market. But the thing that we held constant at the time was like, we're focused on the mid-market, this very specific set of businesses. And we actually sold originally the sales products into marketers because there was, in a lot of our customers, there was such a tight connection between the marketing team and the sales team. So we went from marketing to sales, and then we started selling directly into the sales team. They then did the same thing where with the service hub, where there's a tight connection between sales and customer success and support. And so then they originally sold that product into customers where the sales leader might have been over uh, support and sales and then expanded into service. And then they did the same thing into operations. But now where they're at, right, which is like, okay, how many products can we launch? How do we maintain that like amazing 50, 40 to 50% year over year growth? Can we continue doing that with uh, just launching additional subscription products? That's really freaking hard, right? And this is where I think the unsung hero, which they barely talked about at inbound because of like the AI noise is in Commerce Hub. So what Commerce Hub is that they launched is essentially 
they're building invoices, like payments and subscriptions um, product. If you've ever worked on a payments product, which I know <laughs> Farid has, it is a pain in the ass. It is a huge pain in the ass. Uh, there's a lot of different things around it. Has all the typical features that you could imagine. You can send invoices. It's processing payments. It's tightly connected with their other products. The CRM, like really advanced reporting. So this is them moving from that operations persona, sales persona into the finance persona. But the key difference is it's not a subscription product. They actually charge on a percentage of transactions. So from their pricing so far, it seems like they're going to take about 1% on top of the original um, transaction fees. And the reason I think this is so interesting is this starts to look and have like a lot of Shopify vibes to me, where um, I was looking up basically what Shopify's revenue, this is old data, but um, Shopify basically makes only about 20, 22% of their revenue from subscription. And a huge other chunk of that comes from what they call their merchant solutions. And now there's a few things packaged in there, but a huge part of it is the transaction fees that they take on payments. They do, um, they've then, they've then uh, taken that into other things like giving out credit and loans and other things. But the reason I think this is so interesting for HubSpot is, okay, now that they have this huge customer base, hundreds of thousands of B2B companies, right? Can we unconstrain a little bit of our revenue with a different pricing model and start taking a percentage of all of their billings with this product and this commerce hub to continue to accelerate that revenue? And so I, it's going to be a very hard product to sell into this customer base. But I think if we look at other parallels like Shopify, it's possible that this could even outweigh the subscription revenue at some point, uh, which I find incredibly fascinating um, just as another product market fit expansion lever for them into the future. So anyways, they barely talked about this. I I have... I probably know why we, we, we kind of barely talked to, when we, when I was there, we barely talked about things because we weren't quite ready to like push the fuel uh, behind it and some other things. But I felt like it was its unsung hero from uh, the whole, the whole set of things. And so anyways, Farid, I'm interested in, in your take first. Well, one, I love Brian that like the narrative was you know, right at the top, it says AI powered smart CRM. And you're like, no, no, no. The thing I want to talk about is this the box on the far right, which is about commerce, which I think is great. I don't know enough about the AI powered stuff in, in HubSpot's thing. It's to, all to the, talk it's all the checklist roadmap stuff yeah. that we talked about in the last episode. It's like, help me generate, you know, writing your email, all those things. It's all the things that I think the customers expected from them, there, I, there wasn't really anything in there that felt different than from what we've yeah. seen from other products recently. Yeah. I, I think what's interesting about this is if you pulled up a very, if you replace the word hub with cloud, this looks very similar to the Salesforce strategy that Salesforce has executed over the past like 20 to 30 years, right? I don't remember what all the clouds are called. They have some additional ones that HubSpot doesn't do, but this is, I think, a really good example of we have a very similar set of products for a different market, SMB, that is underserved by this other player. 
uh, and by being laser focused on that mid market or smaller businesses, we can build a really successful business and sort of do very similar things, but our products are tailor made. And my thing that I think is interesting about this one is I can squint my eyes and hypothesize a little bit as an outsider that this particular product, the, what they're calling Commerce Hub, is actually one that is they are uniquely positioned to do really, really well in versus, say, Salesforce. Because if you're Salesforce, most of your customers are like other big enterprise, large ticket software companies where I don't think they're really that interested in like an integrated bill, like buying a different billing solution and, you know, a NetSuite or even Stripe or whatever makes sense. But for, for HubSpot's customers, a big piece of HubSpot's whole strategy is like bundled is better for this market. Like if it all works together, it's better for me. I can make better business decisions. I don't need as much tech in my company. I can like market, sell, charge, et cetera. And they look more like e-commerce sellers like Shopify than they do like enterprise software companies as their customers. And I think that makes this like a unique arm that will start to differentiate them from, oh, it's just a mid-market version of Salesforce and all the same same products as Salesforce has. So I think that's kind of cool. It seems like a really smart bet. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Like the, the the really big companies, the enterprise players, they're gonna integrate some kind of payment processor directly. They might use some kind of like enterprise billing system, probably build some stuff in house, like all all of that kind of stuff. But the small and medium cycle, the people that HubSpot serve, which are a you know a lot of B two B service companies, they're just like. I just need this easy. <laughs> like, I don't want to deal with this. <clears throat> I don't want to deal with like all of this billing, all of these things. And so if I'm already using the CRM, if I'm already using their operations product uh, to touch part of, you know, this revenue cycle, it's like, it kind of becomes a, what, like, why not? Why not attach this um, into, into the equation? Any thoughts? Are you like, yeah. to be boring? <laughs> <laughs> Hey man, Eventbrite was all B two B for most of my time there. Uh, so I think you know the whole. I'll, I'll quickly like cover the consumer versus B two B a difference here, which is when we talk about you know consumer products, we're talking about network effects and scaling these growth loops indefinitely, and and how new product expansion is actually really hard. You know, outside of like launching new countries, right? But generally in B two B, new product expansion is less difficult like there's more of a playbook on getting that second product sold into the same type of customer to be successful like the risk of product market fit is just a lot lower and while consumer companies tend to scale you know by you know choosing their network effects a lot of these b2b products like hubspot don't have strong network effects or any network effects at all and just sweet expansion is how they grow. And when it's done well, it's it's a beautiful thing. And yes, HubSpot, this is an example of doing it at the mid-market, but like Microsoft is the classic version of this even before, you know, Salesforce, right? There are just companies you go to and every single thing they do is run on Microsoft because to Breed's point, it's just easier to add that next thing that's a Microsoft product versus potentially go get something different and have to integrate it. And I think we've seen this back and forth in scaling companies on how much they just buy everything from the same company 
versus how much they try to integrate best in class and stitch it all together. And, you know, both are viable options, but depending on, you know, what's going on in the market, you'll, you'll see kind of this push and pull of the bend towards buying one suite versus the bend towards, uh, you know, integrating a lot of other uh, products together. And of course, what you also see on that slide is the HubSpot marketplace where they do integrate with lots of other, you know, non HubSpot products, uh, quite successfully as well. So to me, like HubSpot just looks like they're running the classic B2B product expansion playbook extremely well, but I don't know that commerce hub fits this playbook that they've been running super mm -hmm. well. And that might be part of why you mentioned like they didn't talk about this much because maybe they don't have the entire strategy figured out here yet. Does this actually solve a large problem for their existing customer base that they know how to cross sell into the way they went from marketing to sales to operations, et cetera? For me, I, I would need to bake a lot more on the details of that strategy to see if it can actually replicate their competitive advantages that they've been really successful at replicating so far to, to, to show that revenue graph. I don't know if, if this feels quite different on the surface. And I think- Why does it feel different to you? You know, a few reasons. I think the rest of that slide that you showed is kind of just taking same customer and creating the product that's budding right up next to the product they're already using that is HubSpot products. Mm -hmm. And Commerce Hub starts to feel like a very different part of the stack. It's not just do this for this other department for me. Um, it's uh, use HubSpot for a totally different value prop. Um, uh, and then to your point, it starts to expand it to a very different competitive set than they're used to. Shopify is not asleep at the wheel. If that's really uh, the competitive direction they're going, and I've I've found that you know competing in those sorts in those sorts of spaces with that particular company is a recipe for disaster. They're just the far and away the best at what they do. So I just need to learn a lot more around what they plan for this to be. And you know, HubSpot's really good at B two B marketing. That's why they didn't talk a lot about this. You know, in their presentation. They're kind of, you know, seeding that this thing is going to be there and that there's something going. We're not ready to go whole hog into telling you all about it because we're not sure we know all about it yet or we're playing around here. So, you know, probably in the next couple of these, they start to talk more and more about it once they're more and more confident they have a winning playbook to replicate for commerce. But yeah, there's a lot of open questions for me as to whether this can replicate the success of all the boxes to the left of it. it. I agree that if they do it, it sounds like a big one. That's also part quick of clarification. Yeah, quick clarification. I don't think, uh, I was using Shopify as an analogy for the subscription, um, like payment payments model. I think HubSpot has essentially all but given up on the e-commerce as like their core customer. Clavio has sort of taken most of that market around like the marketing <laughs> hub and, you know, Shopify is like taking some of the other, uh, yes. has taken some of the other infrastructure and stuff. I think I, the reason I, I is, I look at it is like, there's, I think, yeah, before the, the business looked very much pattern matching to Salesforce. Right. And this bar particular product, I think does have some differences to it and starts to look more like a Shopify esque type of of like value Ooh, price. Do they like, sell this against you think as they launch this. 
Oh, I think I think it's like the other subscription. Uh, probably uh, the yeah. other subscription. Well, I I was thinking more like isn't it like Charge B and like Zora? Uh, uh, Zora probably. Yeah, but that's my guess is like they that they they go into. But Zora's moved very enterprise from right or from just my knowledge, right? Like you know using yes. You know, yes. like build.com? Yeah, com? yeah like, build, uh, maybe build.com, okay. maybe invoice maybe, to go, that kind of stuff. Depends on how small you go, yeah, yeah, with like, with, yeah, with like invoice to go and, and stuff. Yeah, so, so that's probably more the competitive set for sure. Here's what I think is interesting. For a relatively smallish business, let's assume they have a lot of customers because they are also servicing smaller businesses. That seems like the typical HubSpot, like, you know, customer, right? I'm a mid-market company. I am also serving mid-market companies probably or something like that. Why would I buy all these tools? Well, they're all effectively CRM, right? There's customer relationship management for marketing. There's customer relationship management for sales, for service, for email operations. I don't know. That's maybe a little bit different. But if you can also integrate in a deep and interesting way who's paid, how much they paid, what their history looks like, et cetera, into all of those CMS tools in a first-class way, that's a pretty good bundle. So I get it from a just pure product perspective. Like, why would someone ask for this as a customer? No one says, I want to pay HubSpot more money. They say, I want you to like do more things for me. And hey, in my service hub, I'd like to see the payment history, et cetera, like, Having built these tools before, big pain in the butt, takes a lot of like integration work to do. And then I want to get paid faster. I want to see who's, you know, delinquent, net 30, et cetera. I want to integrate it into QuickBooks. These are the types of things they're talking about there. You can see that for a company without meaningful internal engineering resources that just like flip a switch and turn this stuff on and charge all my customers, get a checkout flow, et cetera. Basically Shopify for invoiced B2B products could be really valuable to those customers. And then on the benefit side to the business creates natural NRR, like recurring revenue expansion, because those customers are going to grow the amount of stuff they're selling versus now what they really need to do, which is like sell more products to drive that. I do that uh, like that it aligns HubSpot even closer to the success of their customers, right? Like my customers' revenues grow, um, all of a sudden my revenues grow, which wasn't, which was kind of true before, but pretty pretty indirect on, you know, most of their other products charge on like per contact or or per, or per seat basis. But I, I do think that is an interesting element. Um, I do think that's an interesting element around here. And once in, I think will be very hard, very, very hard to rip out <laughs> for, for folks. So, yes. Uh, last All bit right. on this, I'm curious, a question for y'all as people who work with um, early stage companies, every really successful, large B2B software company is multi-product, basically, right? Um, there are with very few exceptions. I mean, you could call Zoom a single product company because like most of the revenue probably comes from a single product. <laughs> Slack. <laughs> Even Figma has already gone multi-product. So even the ones with really with network effects or virality have gone multi-product earlier. But a lot of the early stage advice is like, be super focused, build just one thing, et cetera. Like, how much do you think that builders in the early stages should be thinking about their multi-product strategies and sort of telling that story or at least building towards it 
relatively early. So like, when did HubSpot add the second box and how many years into it were they before they did that? And if they were to rewind, do you think they would have started earlier? HubSpot was seven years in about six or seven years in. But this is uh, Parker Conrad's founders, the CEO's Ripplings whole thesis right now, uh, which I'm trying to remember what he calls it. Uh, the compound, uh, the compound startup, yeah. yeah, the compound startup, which is that is the old advice, right? Like that you should focus on one product for a long time. But because SaaS has seen so much proliferation, like that opportunity for a lot of companies you know, it's just hard. It's hard to get the growth and the momentum and the unique value prop that you need at this point. And so his whole thesis is like, well, because of that, there's actually these opportunities for startups to go multi-product much earlier or like straight out of the gate. Uh, And that is the value prop that is going to resonate in the market with all of these different point solutions. There's a bunch of other markets that will really like the all-in-one value prop and of course rippling has done it in kind of the hr uh back office uh type of type of space and seems like they've seen you know quite a bit of success on it and how you have to build you know you you know he talks a lot about how you have to build your company and the specific talent um the way i think it's like a really interesting i think it's a very fascinating thesis uh because I, i do think if hubspot could do it all over again they might do it a little bit earlier but they did time it, you know, kind of perfectly in the sense that they they have maintained this like 45-ish to 50% year-over-year growth since going public, which was in 2016, 2015. So like eight years, right? Like that, that's, that's no easy feat. Well, I think HubSpot just sequenced yeah. its S-curves correctly. That's like the thing every company wants to do. And of course- it's hard to understand a lot of the time when is your first product yeah. going to reach the top of that S-curve. And then you, of course, need the new product to have a couple of years to bake before that happens so that it can be providing the growth that the original product no longer can. I don't find Parker's thesis very compelling because very few companies can replicate his fundraising strategy to do that. Uh, yeah, that's fair. like very few could be like, oh, I'm just going to go get a hundred million and hire a hundred engineers in India immediately <laughs> and launch five products. Like most people have to go find product market fit with a single product to get the type of attention to even have a chance of doing that. So I, I think it's convenient for him to say that. I just don't know that the average B2B entrepreneur can replicate that. But I do think the market in SaaS and B2B generally is more perfectly competitive than it was when HubSpot, you know, originally launched which means the markets are a little bit smaller on average for your original product, which means you need to sequence to the second product faster. And if you're Figma and you're just a runaway in an expanding market, um, then you could take a little bit longer. Like that company's not going to live or die by the success of FigChamp, most likely, right? Because the the core product, it just apparently has such a large TAM and, and a growing TAM. But, you know, when I'm advising B2B startups today, a lot of what we talk about is like, okay, what's this S-curve shaping up to be? What are our expansion opportunities, category, country, new product? When do we need to start thinking about that? Uh, and I do think you need to tell that story to people who are going to give you money, especially in you know a down macro environment of like, hey, how does this sequence to multi-product? I think every investor wants to hear about that. 
And you need to build into your strategy some optionality based on the growth you're seeing in your core business, how quickly you need to start validating those second, third opportunities in a way that probably a bunch of people didn't think a bunch, as much about like when you know HubSpot uh, started because there was just a runaway of kind of 10 years of growth they knew they could go get because it was, it was wide open. So I think that is, you're correct, that feels very different today. I think it's always been there, but you can grow faster out the gate if you find product market fit, which then means you hit the S-curve faster. And if you don't build the expanding suite around your product market fit, another entrepreneur is going to go do it before you get to it. So that's another reason that you feel like compelled to do it faster. And all of those play into uh, B2B founders thinking about second product earlier. I do think some think still think about it too early though, because... If you think about it too early, it distracts you from going and getting the maximum growth out of the first product. I definitely felt like Eventbrite when I joined had waited too late to launch the second products. So like as soon as I got in there, I'm like, here's product two, here's product three. We need to catch up because, you know, if there was just no path to, like you said, 50% year on year growth with 14 years of basically one product. Uh, it's well, like, well, we already got it. Like everyone knows about this product. Most people have used it. Most people bought tickets in it. We need other things. It also depends on uh, the business model of that first yeah. product and how profitable it is, right? How fast you need to expand to. At minimum, I think I've personally fallen into the trap of the idea that like, oh, by building more features and by making the product better, that'll improve our retention over time. That'll just help us accelerate and drive growth in this product. And while that is true, it tends to always be way less true than you think it is. Like there is generally one use case that is the primary use case for a product that drives the vast majority of engagement and retention and is the thing that fuels it. And it is very hard to move that, right? And so at minimum, I think it's important, especially if you're building a relatively horizontal B2B type product, to ask the question, how do we better position, market, and at least sell this to adjacent verticals? You know, uh, and maybe that includes some feature work but really thinking of it as a coordinated effort to acquire and retain a different segment in a different way versus just, oh, let's just like continuously add improvements, you know, based on customer feedback and like build and build and build because what you're doing there is actually narrowing the market accidentally by building for the people you already have versus taking an explicit product market fit expansion strategy. There's one other thing with this read, which I find super interesting is if you're doing that product market fit expansion, like let's say Rippling as an example, Rippling's like, you know, go copy this, add it into bundle, sell. And that sometimes works, but sometimes it's, if I go copy this and sell it, it's not good enough for people to switch from. And I need to figure out our company's unique spin on it that makes it sellable, right? So how much does differentiation matter in product two versus product three versus just extending your distribution advantage? I think with Microsoft, you see an interesting balance of the two. Like some, it's like, no, I got that. You can buy it here too. And it works. And some, they end up having like a very different product market fit that they work through. I think them competing with Zoom and Slack is an interesting example of, of both, right? Uh, and you see this with B2B, but also with consumer fintech, right? Like they're going to run a playbook that looks more similar to B2B where they're launching different financial products. Obviously, everyone wants to be the full financial suite for the human instead of just the point-to-point -point, uh, solution. And yeah, kind of the question is, 
do you need your own take on it to win the market or can you do what Rippling is doing? And be like, no, just, just copy it wholesale. It's in our bundle and we're going to win on our sales advantage. Because um, the other thing that I find interesting from more a cultural perspective is if the answer is go copy it, those tend not to be the healthiest product cultures because that's a little bit more soul crushing work. Like no one wants to just go copy wholesale feature from feature from a, a competitor. People want to do more interesting product work. So the balance of power shifts to the distribution elements of the company, not the product elements of the company. Generally means the product quality is going to be worse than the competitor uh, you you know stole the idea from. So these are all kind of interesting things to keep in balance as you try to replicate the strategy like inside your own company. And yeah, they're not like easy answers. All right, let's shift the conversation. Reed and I wanted to one talk of you, about that one. One of you cue us up. Yeah. Reed, you want to get started? Hunter Walk, uh, who is a VC and investor, invests primarily with his partner Satya, uh, and they primarily invest their own money. And so they sort of, you know, have a shifted view, I think, because of that around some um, VC oriented topics and investment oriented topics. Wrote a really great article this week uh, that resonated with me and I thought was interesting that is titled, It's a Long One. The only thing which has failed about the creator economy thus far is venture capital's attempt to get their piece, why there's never been a better time to be a creator. And so he basically like kicks it off by saying, like, I judge the health of the creator economy by basically what is the ease of access and probability of survival for its participants. While it's harder to make a million dollars as a creator because of power law dynamics and the changing of some of these networks. Uh, it is easier than ever if you're a creative person to make $50,000 or more a year uh, on the internet doing your craft. And because of some of the platforms that have emerged, because of the distribution you can get, because of the monetization tools that exist. And he has a couple of hypotheses around this, but I think just to kick off, like Casey, you've spent a ton of time working on marketplaces, creator economy, et cetera. Do you agree with the basic premise? Do you believe that this is the best time to be a creator? I agree with the premise. I disagree with some of his points underneath that, right? So I agree that more people can be making money in this way than ever before. Uh, COVID certainly accelerated it, in to, which he pointed out in the post. Um, but this hasn't seen as much of a deceleration as some other products coming out of the like the, the COVID uh, hangover. So I agree at that point, but I, I just, I take issue with some of his advice to startups going into this space, right? So, you know, for me, I'm on the board of a creator economy company. Eventbrite was largely a creator economy company. I, I've had some angel investments in creator economy company and a hundred walks point. Those angel investments aren't doing so well, but there's a lot of stuff in the post that I like, and then there's some stuff that I take to, so I'll start with some, some things that I like. Uh, one is he said, uh, that, Hey, on the outside, uh, from the outside, this looks like a vertical. And once you get into servicing these customers, they largely look very different. And I agree with that point entirely. I think different, you know, creators have different things that they need. And Eventbrite felt like this when I joined, right? Like Eventbrite looks like a, a vertical company events and then you get into it and you're like oh no there's concerts there's conferences there's festivals and they all kind of need something different and if you can actually build enough product to service all those different needs you could be quite successful but it is a lot more work and i think the issue i take with a lot of the creator economy startups is 
they're just pretty thin products, mostly to monetize because the platforms in which all these creators build their following don't pay them any money or pay them very little money. You know, Instagram, YouTube, TikToks of the world, right? And to me, fulfillment is not a venture business. Like, uh, especially for small businesses and micro businesses, like you need a lot more than that uh, to be successful. And to his point in the post, if the top end creators are going to be making more of the money then you know you're going to need to do a lot more than them than just be simple fulfillment because the bigger companies will work with the top end creators and even if they won't your ability to make good your return from them is small because someone else will always be willing to give them a better deal to get them to work with them so i think if all the money's in the top end creators and you know you're just fulfillment and you want to charge 10%. Well it's like well guess what? Like 10% is a lot of money for the top creators. They're going to look for a better deal and they will get it. Or if you're building some more SaaS product for their workflow. Well, the top end creators are actually probably going to be served well by normal SaaS businesses at this point, which means you're only selling to the bottom end creators which are going to have high churn, low revenue, all that kind of stuff, you know, also not venture scale. So I think a lot of what these creator economy businesses have issues with is they don't drive demand, which is, you know, still what most people want. They want more business or they do fulfillment workflow stuff, and then they can't charge enough for it. So the, the main issue I have with the post is he's like creator economy charges need to start to need to charge more. And to me, I'm like, they can't, as soon as they charge more, they lose out to incumbents. If you want to charge more, you need to create a lot more value where people will graduate out of the system. So I think Substack is a slightly more scaled creator economy company. I think it's very interesting what they're doing because they charge 10%, and which means when people build a lot of paid subscriptions, they want to churn off. And they built a feature specifically to stop graduation with their top writers, which is recommendations, because mostly the recommendations go to the top writers, but the top writers are getting more demand. So it starts to feel like a demand generation product in which 10% feels great to pay for additional demand. But even then, that's not a venture business because it still only is charging 10% of paid subs, which is the minority of subs. Most subscriptions are free and, and free is higher growth. So they're going to need to launch ads. They're going to need to turn free subscriptions into freemium where you know you want to pay if you don't want to see the ads on the Substack, but they're going to do a lot of stuff to try to turn that into a venture scale business and they're infinitely further along than most every other greater economy company so there's a a lot of work in this space to get to venture scale and i think it starts with you need to be building a lot more back to our point about SaaS businesses and you know in our previous conversation so i, I said a lot of stuff there but the, i had a lot of thoughts well, this is this is the thing that jumped out to me as well. That the thing, or the thing I couldn't connect the dots on, and and you kind of said it, but I just want to recast it, which is most creators they need demand, right? Like that's the biggest thing that they want. They want distribution, yes. right? Yet at the same time, they want to own their audience. That's like another thing that I think uh, I've seen, which uh, leads to the graduation problem. If I own my if I own my audience and I can export it anywhere then uh, that makes it very easy for me to like move off platforms, graduate to different platforms, which then gets to the conclusion about percentage take rate, where the conclusion about the percentage take rate is that needs to go up. But if you like 
reverse that, it's like, well, if I if I increase my percentage take rate, then I increase the graduation problem. At, like I accelerate the graduation problem. So th- those are the things that don't necessarily uh, equate for me. And I, I I guess the piece that I'm having trouble from a from like the creator's perspective is like if you're looking for a company to drive distribution for you. And you want to own the audience? Are those two things actually compatible? Can can a can a company really build a business off that off both of those dynamics? Is I'm going to pay and do all of the hard work to drive distribution for you, but I'm going to also let you own your audience and graduate off this platform at at any point in time. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think um, you know different companies have different stances on this. So the social network, so like. No, it's our audience. If you want to go somewhere else where we don't give you the email addresses, we don't give you any way to bring those people over. You can, of course, do an Instagram post that tells people you're on TikTok or whatever, but like that's as much as you get. And that will probably be depositioned and feed and all that kind of stuff because it mentions a competitor. Um, at Eventbrite, you're basically like, look, if you're bringing your audience uh, from your own marketing, from your email list that you already have, it's your audience. You can export it and take it anywhere else. But, you know, we're also going to drive some demand for you and we're going to increasingly charge a premium for that and all that kind of, you know, stuff. So a lot friendlier terms than, uh, say, like, you know, a social network. But if you leave, you're going to stop getting all of that incremental demand that we drive. Uh, So there's an incentive to stay on the platform because you keep getting incremental demand from us, you know, every day, right? And that's what no creator economy startup has really done yet. He's found a way to scalably drive incremental demand. Substack is starting to do it for the very tip top of creators, which solves their graduation problem. It doesn't make them a venture scale business, in my opinion. They need to do a lot more sequencing from there, but at least staves off, I think, one of their biggest issues. Uh, it stops the bleeding. It stops the bleeding of graduation. And now it's like, okay, now that we've stopped the bleeding, can we make more money? And that's where I think like ads is a natural expansion for them and turning the free newsletters because that's where all the growth is into a freemium product to upsell the paid might be the most interesting path. We'll see what they end up doing. But um, yes, it's, yeah, I, okay, take it, take it out of the creator economy for a second and say, we're all building startups, right? We want to go get free distribution from Google and Facebook and TikTok and then convert it into our, you know, apps directly. And largely we've all built our careers on doing that. Um and that's still a great value exchange with those companies, Facebook and Google, et cetera, who have built you know incredible businesses off the top of that, right? Because what it turns out is if we're successful, people do visit Grubhub directly, Pinterest directly, you know, HubSpot directly, Instacart directly, et cetera. But it's not like they stop using Google and stop using Facebook, right? It's just now they know they go to our product directly. So I do think that's possible, but we all know the amount of work we put in <laughs> to build those products to be retentive and for people to come back directly and individual creators just don't have largely, you know, the systems behind them to be as effective as, you know, the companies we've worked at have been. So it'd be interesting to see if some of them get there, like the biggest ones, you know, figure out how to replicate that. But, you know, the, the space is still nascent there. So thought experiment here, we talked a little bit about distribution but and then there's this like thin sliver of take payments. Do a little bit of CRM. That is like the standard creator economy thing right now. What are the things that, it, as a product person, if you were advising a creator economy company, Casey, 
you would consider or think about uh, maybe using Eventbrite as an example or otherwise of like the types of things that could drive higher take rates. Because I do think a really interesting thought experiment that Hunter puts out is like your cultural value add is driven by like how much you charge. I think I've seen this in companies like in a low gross margin business, it's all about efficiency. It's all about the grind. It's all about working hard. It's all about shaving every penny. And in a high gross margin business, it can be more about the craft, about product quality, about like building the best thing, about really thinking about and listening to customers in a, in a, in a you know aligned way because you you have the space there. And I think the interesting point is like these companies have tried to build the business on like Stripe plus a percent or whatever it is, and that's driven a set of incentives. So what would it look like? What would a marketplace or creator economy company built on? Hey, we're going to take half, let's say, and we're going to really earn it. Like you're going to love giving us that 50% because it's more than double the business you would have. I think the app store of Apple is a really great example of like 30% looked. Some people still argue with it and it, it, but like a lot of people take that. I still argue with it. Right. Yeah, sure. But my point is like, what might that look like? I'm curious if there are things that came to mind for you because he doesn't give a lot of ideas or examples there. Well, I do think uh, there's a couple of approaches you can take related back to our previous uh, conversation. One is more of a compound product where you're doing so much of the running the business for them and making it more efficient that you're just building a really complete SaaS solution probably to Hunter's point for a vertical of creators first, and then you're running category expansion within their creator economy, which I just haven't seen a lot of people you know, do, but I think that maybe works. But I think the thing people missed is like doing X thing for creators is not enough. It needs to be X thing that's 10X better for creators because of XYZ. Access to credit has been one of the early theses. It's not really proven out yet, but you know, a lot of banks don't really know how to value a creator's business. So so things like that uh, potentially is going to be a way where you can add 10x value. Um, so that's one. And kind of, you know, the one that I spend more of my time on, obviously, is the one on how you build uh, marketplace, you know, cross-site network effects. And I think the advantage of uh, thinking more of that as a core thesis is you you do solve monetization for them. They do bring in their demand so that they can monetize it away from places like Instagram and TikTok where they can't. But because a bunch of other creators are bringing in their demand, you can cross-sell very effectively to get each creator a lot more demand. Now, this does run up into Hunter's uh, component around a 1,000 true fans. They're not all independent, um, which is why, you know, Beak, the company I'm on the board of, we bundle all that into a subscription and then divvy out the payments to the creators based on the engagement of their content. Uh, but the point is that you could build something where you are driving, you know, 50% incremental demand to a creator, but also the creator is playing a role in driving demand to the platform. And then you do some other things on top of that, like SEO performance marketing. That I think is a very interesting playbook where the companies that are doing this are like series A, right? They're very early, but that feels like a more scalable path. Well, like, because Casey, I know you've written previously about the SaaS to marketplace transition and yes. how difficult 
uh, and Strength. unrealistic that can be in a lot of cases. And yeah. so I'm wondering how that fit, how this fits with, because I think, because what I hear you saying is like, oh, you've got to build really great uh, SaaS tool that does a lot of things. Hunter breaks it down into create, distribute, monetize tools that help you create, distribute, monetize. So let's say I build that compound startup, that tool, and then get to the, then get to the marketplace. I think it's either or, Brian. I think you either be best in class Creator okay. SaaS business, okay. or you try to build build the network effect business from day one. Okay. I don't think you try to sequence between the two. Yeah. So here's a thesis: if you wanted to build a very high take rate creator economy type company, I think you want to be focused on the type of creator who has incredibly high talent and differentiation in terms of the service they provide and little to no interest in driving their own demand or ability to drive their own demand. So the opposite of an influencer, right? If you think about like what an influencer is, it's a person with a ton of following looking for ways to monetize. On the flip side, like think about a traditional journalist or a musician. Why do labels or uh, newspapers exist? It's because that person wants to report a story. They don't want to go like find readers for their story. They want the newspaper to do that, right? They want the record label to go do that. They want to like do their thing. It's like, and so the creator economy, like one thing that's been uncomfortable for me around a lot of it, it is, it has made the most successful people, the ones who are best at marketing and distribution and not necessarily the ones who are like best at their craft. And so like if I were building and I don't know what this would look like, Casey, you and I have talked to some companies that sort of do this. They're like, hey, you're good at a thing and we're going to do everything to bring business in a box isn't just the tools. It's like actually the demand as well. And I think that those kinds of things could drive this kind of business. So I think that's an interesting like lens to look at if you're an entrepreneur is where is there a lot of like latent talent that either has no interest or, or lacks the skill? to drive their own demand and how might you do that for them? And then you said one other thing I thought was interesting, and this goes to the thousand true fans problem, which is I think you maybe bundle the monetization in some way. So it's like more like Spotify, like I pay for the everything and then it's divvied up versus I'm paying for this specific person because that's where you run into the problem of like not a lot of people want to pay five different people for a golf newsletter. So I like subscribe to like six or seven different golf things. And like, I'm never going to pay for more than one or two. And honestly, all of them talk to the same thousand people. But if there was like a world where I'm like, oh, I mean, I don't know, we're recreating newspapers here. So like, I want to be a little careful, but like, I do think there is some model like that, like a, a reimagining of the bundled subscription that drives these things. I'm a little bit reverse engineering reforged here. So, <laughs> but, uh, and some of the model there, but, um, uh, I think those are the ingredients that would make this work. Brian thoughts. So a lot of the early creator economy bets have not worked out like a lot of those investments, but are there ones that you might bet on at this point, like a one or two? You're talking about not companies. You're talking about ideas. Or, no, I'm or, talking about companies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously I'm on the board of one, so I, I made a pretty big bet to spend years of my time on it. But historically, I have not seen a lot of things that I would invest in in this space because it still feels like we're in the 
1.0 stage of creator economy startup ideas and we need to get to like the 2 or 3.0 to find the ones that can really be billion dollar companies. So I think, you know, Fareed mentioned a startup that we looked at called Teach Me Too, which I did invest in. Um, and it's exactly that point of like, you got the skill, but you don't have the um, distribution. The distribution and Teach Me Too is good at driving distribution. But on top of that, to to you know some of the points we made earlier, it's also building so much of the business in a box stuff. So all you have to do is do that thing and everything else is taken care of the same way the record labels have done that for musicians as like a, a very relevant example. So I want to see more stuff like that, but I, I haven't seen a lot that looks like that, you know, in the market. I, I think in general, when you look at the landscape for creator economy or marketplaces, you know, the last five years have just worked what people were building businesses about and, and how big they thought they could get. And now you're seeing this kind of return to some really solid strategic thinking about what could be a venture scale business. And all those companies are at seed or series A uh, because like you needed to kind of wash over this. Oh, I just write some code and I'm worth a billion dollars, you know, sort of thinking that was going on for a while. So all this stuff is early, a bit unproven, but hopefully there's a lot of this coming out in the next five years. Well, do you prefer the, the SaaS or the marketplace bet? If it's an either or to you. Which one would you? Uh, it, well, you've placed some time on the marketplace bet with with Teach Me Too, but but yeah, in general, in general. Look, I think if it fits enough of the thesis as an angel investor, the answer is yes. Like if it's doing enough in either one of those strategies to have the legs, I'm in. Obviously, more of my background is as a marketplace operator and investor, so that's a little bit more where I have a bias uh, and feel like I know the playbook to get it to the type of scale it needs to you know uh be to have a, a return so if you're asking me to pick between one i'm gonna pick the marketplace model for sure but if it's got the right elements in more of the SaaS model and i feel like i understand i understand and they understand their target market to build that 10x better business in a box thing i think uh that would be something i'd be like happy to write a check into also for it i'm probably more on the marketplace side because as i like thought through this higher take rate thing i just don't see how demand generation isn't a huge piece of the puzzle if you want to like have a healthy everybody is happy to pay a lot of money for this service type of business and i just don't think that like enabling back office is a huge unlock to bring a lot more creators to the table i think it helps reduce some friction but the thing that would unlock a whole like new category of creator is make it possible to run run a business, which usually means demand. So I'm just thinking about like, you know, if I'm a personal trainer, that's true. If I'm an artist, that's true. If I'm a voiceover, uh, you know, uh, person, that's true. If I'm a podcast, that's true. Like what is blocking my success is not my creativity or my ability to run, you know, my billing, uh, or my CRM. That's like helpful, but what's really keeping me from making a living is having enough demand uh, to to like keep doing this as a full time job. And I think the companies that solve that problem will be the ones that, ignoring venture scale, will be successful in their relative to their market sizes. Yeah, I think your thesis of unbundling influencers from creators or unbundling marketing from creating is interesting, and we'll see how that you know plays out over time because. Yeah, influencers 
already have a way to get the demand. <laughs> uh, that's arguably what they're better at than than content. Um, and while I don't think it's healthy to call to say to content creators, you don't need to worry about demand at all. Like you do need to have a way to have your stuff be marketable, but have more systems that are better at generating demand, like centralized marketplaces can then go market that most effectively, I, I think is, is very interesting. Since we have extra time, should we shift to why there haven't been big marketplaces built? Or we could do a check-in on where you two are at in the career transition hell. Wow. <laughs> like a little, little like horse race to see, see, see where people are at. I want to hear, you know, I think we've already dove into this. So let's wrap it up a little bit. Casey, I, yeah, I am curious about your thoughts of like, are there more marketplaces to be built or have all of them been created already? There are a ton of marketplaces to be built, is my point of view. I, I think when you look at the marketplace landscape right now, at least like venture scale, right? There's a couple that are late stage private, right? Like like a whatnot. There's a few that are like in the series B range, like a good dog or a bounce. And then there's basically a ton of stuff at C, maybe series A. And uh, so you're like, well, why is there this kind of disconnect in uh, you know, the marketplace? Why aren't there just a bunch of marketplaces launching all the time that are growing at, at similar rates? And I think there's a few things that happened over the last you know few years. First off, like good businesses generally need platform shifts uh, to enable opportunities for them to grow on top of. We haven't really had a great platform shift since mobile. And of course, a bunch of great businesses, marketplaces specifically launched on top of mobile, like DoorDash and Uber, et cetera. Uh, what's interesting now, which maybe makes me more bullish on marketplaces, is maybe those companies themselves are large enough to be platforms. Maybe Airbnb is big enough to build a venture scale business on top of. Maybe DoorDash is big enough to build a venture scale business on top of. We're going to see entrepreneurs run at those problems and we'll see uh, if those platforms are ready and receptive enough to having billion dollar companies built on top of them. I think the other thing we saw over the last few years, which is healthy, but was kind of miscalibrated was the shift to trying to build a B2B marketplace. And I think B2B marketplaces aren't like a hyper efficient market because you need a founder that really deeply understands the space to have any chance of success. And I think a lot of the first generation of those B2B marketplaces did have a founder that knew the space perhaps, but the space itself didn't have like as many of the Bill Gurley checklist uh, to make it very easy to launch a marketplace in. So they ended up launching a SaaS business to try to sequence it to a marketplace. And, you know, as Brian mentioned, I'm not super bullish on that strategy. It's very hard. And a lot of those companies just haven't unlocked the cross-site network effect part of, of the strategy. Uh, I think you're seeing B2B marketplaces launch more recently that have that domain expertise, but do have in particular fragmented supply and a huge discovery problem on demand, which are I think are the, the most major parts of the checklist. So I think you're going to see more of those, but it, it kind of needs the right raw ingredients of the founder and the space. And um, that's not going to all just happen, you know, at, at one point in time. But I think you're, you're going to see more of those. So I, I'm seeing a lot of amazing stuff come out at Seed that's, um, you know, going after these sorts of problems. We'll see if they can scale. But I think marketplaces are going to be like a pretty durable 
business model to create venture scale outcomes, but they do kind of um, flex up and down based on are there other things to build on top of to get distribution or are there other things to build on top of that make fulfillment easier? And we'll see if kind of these large scale consumer companies that have been built over the last 15 years enable more of that. I think they will, but it's a little bit of an early stage bet to say definitively. I think you said something interesting in there, but I want to check if it's... I maybe said something interesting to Brian. May, you maybe. maybe said something interesting in there, a word or two. Uh, no, the... Um, so, so you keep referring to the Bill Gurley checklist, right? It's like uh, for those, there's a seminal piece from former VC Bill Gurley of Benchmark uh, writing about all the criteria, you know, the of a marketplace. I think there's ten criteria about, but it sounds like to me what you think is like actually there's probably a couple on that list that are, are the eighty twenty. Is that a is that a fair statement? I think that's right. And I, I've debated whether I should try to write a 2023 version of that post. Uh, feels oh, that'd be an interesting post. I'd read it. To try to write a sequel to Bill Gurley, yeah, who's the master. But um, I think uh, the fragmentation of supply is probably would be number one on the list, right? Of if there are only a few suppliers that drive everything, there's no ability to generate take rate because they have too much market power. So take Expedia and booking, right? They all have flight search and they make $0 from flight search because there's only a dozen or so airline companies. So you just can't charge them anything because if they pull themselves off, um, there's no flight search product. And Southwest famously isn't on any of the flight search products. So you have to go there to their site directly. So they make all their monies from hotels, which are incredibly fragmented. Um, and booking makes more money than Expedia because booking was the first one to sign up all the boutique hotels who have even less pricing power. So that gens tends to be the first one I look at. And when you looked at the first generation of B2B marketplaces, it was like, oh, we're going to do chemicals or something. And it's like, so you try to make money from DuPont and who else? There's just kind of like, there's, there's no real, um, fragmentation there, um, so that's kind of number one on the, the supply side and probably number one on um, the demand side is frequency of need. You could build great low frequency marketplaces. Of course, Airbnb and, and the other travel companies like Expedia Booking are examples, but they need to get very good at different things to succeed. And, and the path is certainly harder when people aren't using the product on average every month. Like Grubhub was just a way easier business to build than Airbnb because, yeah. you know, people would order food, you know, multiple times a month. Yeah. And I think it's the combination. It's got to have one of high frequency or high promiscuity, I think he calls it, which is that you, a person using the service uses a lot of different service providers. So Correct. Airbnb, while low frequency is incredibly like you would you rarely book the same Airbnb twice. And so the marketplace is really valuable to you because you don't just like lock into something and use it over and over again, which is I think a thing a lot of B2B marketplaces suffer from is like they don't really have high promiscuity. They're like relatively low frequency. Once you find the right buyer, you want to just keep buying from that same person. Right. That's generally a way less interesting marketplace opportunity than like for Grubhub. I want to order from Thai, a Thai place sometimes, pizza sometimes, Chinese sometimes. That means you're generally not going to have a direct relationship with all of those restaurants. You're going to just have a, a centralized, you know, hub for that. So, 
you know, a lot of the, these failed SaaS to, to marketplace transitions are discovery is just not that much of a thing. That's a continual need on the demand side. Once they find the right person to cut their hair or whatever, they're going to stick with it. Now, there's some interesting innovations happening in marketplaces with that, with it, which is like, okay, if who we traditionally thought of as supply and demand build a lasting relationship, maybe the marketplace is supply gets access to a wide variety of products to sell demand once they have that relationship with the customer. So we've seen some interesting marketplaces uh, build the network effect, not between you know the hairstylist and you know the person getting their haircut, but the hairstylist and the products that they wouldn't be able to buy on their own, but the marketplace can get access to to then cross sell to all their customers. Hmm. So it's a different type of network effect. So I'm bullish on ideas like that. Well, I'm interested then. Uh, well. Okay, so you mentioned Good Dog earlier. I don't know if you're involved in any way, so if you can't speak your own book or whatever, that, that's fine. Um, which Good Dog is a marketplace to find, you know, reputable breeders to buy dogs from, which is definitely needed. Like all of the other, I don't know if Eddie, if you've ever tried to like look for a dog online, it is just full of garbage, spammy sites. It's just, it's really bad. Um but that's definitely a low frequency need. <laughs> um, right. And uh, there's a high discovery need on that front. But I'm interested if what stands out to you of interesting besides looking at the cute dog pictures. The whole time. Yes, I don't have a relationship with good dog or anything. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a couple things you mentioned. One of them. One is Zillow is a low frequency marketplace but they have this voyeurism around seeing what your neighbor's house is worth and keeping tabs on what they think your house is worth, which keeps the engagement model up, even if the frequency of transaction is, is quite low. So I think Good Dog has elements of that. But I think what's probably more interesting is once you know someone buys a dog, you know a thousand other things they're going to need over the next 10 years. Uh, and if Good Dog can category expand uh, its transactions away from just purchasing the dog to purchasing all the things you're going to need. Those can be recurring purchases, neither of which necessarily are permanent discovery needs. Like once you know the brand of dog food you want, you probably just rebuy it. But if you already have that relationship with good dog, it could at least be a recurring, you know, transaction. So by blending two, a one low frequency need and one high frequency, but low discovery need, potentially the blend of both of them creates a really scalable marketplace. We'll see. I don't, you know, have like an opinion either way, but I think it's an interesting thesis. I think in the conversation around marketplaces with Casey, the biggest thing I took away is, you know, a lot of hype, a lot of dollars has gone into this market. And we think if somebody can crack it, there's probably a venture backable business there. But the struggle is real, right? You know, your top 10% of creators, the ones that are making most of the money, they really need services. And that bottom 90% you know, services isn't their biggest thing that they need. They actually need demand. And for a SaaS kind of model, they, they're kind of a terrible customer, you know, that really high churn, low monetizable audience that really only works if you have incredibly efficient um, type of viral acquisition. And so uh, really interested to see if anybody cracks this. I'm also interested in hearing all your takes. Uh, join us on LinkedIn or social where we're having this conversation. Tell us what we got right. Tell us what we got wrong. Tell us what we missed. And uh, maybe we'll review this in a future episode. Other than that, please uh, leave a review for us in Apple or Spotify or tell a friend. 
Uh, and uh, if you want to get notified of new episodes, just go to reforge.com slash podcast slash unsolicited feedback, and uh, you can subscribe there. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode.